Let's start with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, the fount of all wisdom, by your Holy Spirit, enlighten those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of your truth, they may worship you and serve you from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so we are on lesson eight. And I think this is a crucial lesson for us. Um, this is on the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I think the next lesson, lesson nine, is probably the most important one. But this one's very important. I think if you can get through this and, in fact, even agree with this, then I think you can be Lutheran. <laughs> uh, this is the... Um, this is kind of central, uh, is the work of the Holy Spirit. So I want to begin by asking, who is the Holy Spirit? Um, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person of the Holy Trinity. He is God. So along with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we get this from Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, which I'll share on the screen with you so you could see this yourself. So this is Jesus after his crucifixion and resurrection. He's about to ascend and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he tells to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, again, I'm reiterating this, but uh, we see the name, which is singular. And then we have three names. Um, grammatically, this should say in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But uh, even in the original, it's, it's singular in the name of, and then it lists the, the three persons, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So along with the Father is named the Son, and along with the Son is named the Holy Spirit. Um, this is, this is very important because this shows us that the Holy Spirit is not inferior to the Father or the Son, but uh, co-equal with the Father and the Son. Uh, so the Holy Spirit has a name and we, Jesus has taught us to call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. That means that the Holy Spirit's pronouns are he and him and not it. And I have to catch myself doing this a lot of times. A lot of Christians will do this and will say, oh, the Holy Spirit, or what is the Holy Spirit? Or it is this and that. But the Holy Spirit is a who. Uh, he's a him. He is God. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4 is another text. And this is with Ananias lying to God. And it says this, Ananias uh, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. So what's happening here is that um, when Ananias lies and Satan fills his heart with lies, uh, they say that you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is... Um, uh, an energy or a force or some impersonal object, you can't really lie to an impersonal force or object. You can only lie to a person. So that's the first thing. 
because you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And then you have lied not uh, to men, but to God. And here it's referring to the Holy Spirit as God himself. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 30 says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So you can't grieve an object, but only a person. So uh, something that has its own individual uh, nature in this way. So these texts and many more are why we refer to the Holy Spirit as God and talk about the Holy Spirit as God, as a person and not just the force or the energy of God, but he is God himself. Now, we have one big moment in, I mean, we have a lot of moments in the scriptures, but one big moment that we're going to focus on today with the Holy Spirit. And this is the day of Pentecost. And this is very, very important for understanding who this Holy Spirit is and what he does and uh, what he has accomplished. So before Jesus ascends into heaven, Jesus promised his disciples that he would send them the Holy Spirit. So this is the, the night before he is crucified. He's telling his uh, disciples, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Um, and that through the very death of Christ, this is how the Holy Spirit comes to them. And then Jesus sends the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. So Jesus is crucified. Three days later, he's resurrected. 40 days after his resurrection is his ascension. So he ascends into heaven. And then 50 days, so if you add 10 days to the ascension uh, altogether, that makes 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, uh, that is Pentecost. Pentecost simply means 50. If you have like a, a pentagram um, or uh, a pentagon, right? It's something with five sides. So 50 is what the, what the word means. Now, I want to talk about the significance of the Feast of Pentecost uh, this was one of Israel's three major agricultural festivals. Uh, you could read about it in Leviticus 23, if you want to read more about it. Leviticus 23, 15 through 16. Uh, one of the three major agricultural festivals, uh, this is happening in the spring uh, before um, uh, the, the harvest is, is collected and, and all of these things are done. Uh, it's the second great feast in the Jewish year. And it's called Shavuot, which means the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And this is one of the Jews' three different pilgrimages to Jerusalem. So they had to travel to Jerusalem three times. And all of the Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem for this feast. And this is the Feast of Pentecost. Now, the Jews were dispersed throughout the world at the time for many different reasons and different locations. Uh, they all lived in different lands and they settled there and they had to learn different languages there and they uh, had their children there, so on and so forth. But they all traveled back to Jerusalem for this festival. Now, the way it would work is that they would travel to Jerusalem and they would get there. It wouldn't just be for that one feast. It would be for a significant amount of time, uh, a little bit over a month. So they would travel to Jerusalem during the Passover and then they would remain until the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost. So they would, they were there for all of Holy Week, uh, for selecting the lamb, uh, for the Passover meal, uh, for the Day of Atonement. 
And then they remained another 50 days for, until Pentecost. Now, this is very, very important for understanding what, what I'm going to talk about next, which is Acts chapter 2. Um, so let's look at that. So keep that in mind. <clears throat> Okay, um, let's back up a little. Okay, so in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 12, this tells you who was in the upper room. So they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And, And then it lists everybody who's there. And who's in the upper room here? Uh, well, it's Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, uh, Simon, Judas, the son of James, not Judas Iscariot. He, he had uh, committed suicide before this. Uh, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Uh, in those days, Peter then stood up among the brothers and and then they uh, replaced Judas with uh, Matthias. Okay, then comes chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So this is all of the, the apostles that are together. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, so the they is referring to all of those those names we just read before. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So this is the first thing I want you to make note of. Let me erase these other notes. <laughs> um, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit um, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they spoke in other tongues. Okay, um, let's just stop there at verse 4 and let me explain this so far. Okay, so so far we've seen three miracles here. In fact, if you listen to my sermon on Pentecost for this year, I preached on this. Uh, but there are three miracles. One is the sound of wind. It's not that there was wind, but that it was simply the sound of wind. And this is really interesting because in, in the Old Testament, the word spirit and wind are the same and breath are the same. It's ruach in, in Hebrew. So it's through this noise. It sounds like there's wind, a, a great wind, but there, nothing is moving. So God draws, uses this sound to bring all of the people over, which we'll see a little bit later. Uh, so that's the first miracle. The second miracle is tongues of fire. Now, it's not that there were little like flames, like they didn't look like uh, birthday candles on, <laughs> on Pentecost or anything. It, we often see it depicted like there's a little flame on their head. Uh, the, the Greek here is saying uh, more so that they were engulfed, like they were glowing in this fire so that they were glowing and it, like it looked like they were enveloped in a, a tongue of fire 
and they, they appeared to be on fire, but they weren't burning. So this is a, another great miracle. In fact, what does that remind you of? Uh, the, the burning bush. Yeah, I think I saw one of you mouth that. The burning bush. Um, and what was the import of the burning bush? It was that God was present and that he was speaking through that fire. So that there's the bush and it's, it appears to be on fire, but it's not burning. And then we see the same thing on Pentecost, that God is there and that he is about to speak. So what is he saying now? Well, where is God saying his voice is going to be coming from? Not from a bush, but from these apostles, from these men. So th- there's this strong connection here. Uh, then, then it also says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean that they didn't have the Holy Spirit already. We're going to talk about this later. Uh, they were already Christians. They had faith and no one can have faith apart from the Holy Spirit. But this means that they were, that the Holy Spirit gives different gifts. And there was a specific gift that he gives to them, which is the gift of speaking in tongues. And we're going to talk about that. That's the third miracle. So the third miracle is they began to speak in tongues. Now, what does that mean? Uh, There's a lot of confusion over this. And people say that it's some sort of heavenly language or this, um, uh, this individual language from the heart to God or whatever it might be. But tongues means other languages, actual languages that people speak. Uh, And in fact, we know that's the case because the scriptures tell us. So look, just after that text, it says in verse, starting at verse five, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So I've been, I I told you, I, I prefaced all of this by telling you, the Jews that were dispersed throughout the world. Now they're coming back for this pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for, uh, for Pentecost. And these are the Jews from every nation under heaven. They had different languages and different uh, customs and cultures. And at this sound, well, what sound? The sound of the mighty rushing wind, the multitude, all of these people came together around this upper room and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So, so now, now this is a clue that they're speaking actual languages. They're coming from around the world and now they're hearing them in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So I said this in the sermon when I preached it this year that look, it, nowadays we have audio books and books and Uh, podcasts and YouTube and the internet where we can learn languages. Well, the only way you could learn a language back then is if you talk to the people over a, a, a great course of time. And if you dwelled in those lands, well, if these people are from Galilee, how is it that they're talking all these other languages? Verse eight then says, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then here it lists the, the actual languages they're speaking not heavenly languages. It says the Parthians, the language of the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene uh, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, 
Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, well, they, they are filled with new wine. Um, in other words, they were, they were drunk. So uh, what, what's happening here is that they're speaking these actual languages. And it's mind-blowing because there's a list of, I think, some 18 languages here. Uh, how in the world could somebody learn that many languages living only in one place? They were Galileans. So this is, this is another miracle. So this, these are three miracles so far. All of these miracles that the Holy Spirit performed point to the apostles. And the apostles do what? They point to Jesus. And they talk about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection and his forgiveness. In fact, now that the disciples, it, it, it's just like a switch went off and God caused them he gave them the miracle of speaking languages, speaking every language. This is when he says, um, go into all nations, baptizing them, right? This all nations, this language is the ability um, to speak to all nations. Well, now there's a fourth miracle here, um, and which I, uh, which, which I, I didn't uh, talk about yet. The fourth miracle is this, is... Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon. And it's a pretty simple sermon. It's short. Um, But we hear that it says that it cut them to the heart. Let me show you that text. You could read his sermon. So Peter stands up uh, starting at verse 14 and he goes all the way to uh, verse 36. And then he ends the sermon with these words. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, were those Jews from around the world there for the crucifixion? Yeah, they they were there. They were there during Passover and they were there for Pentecost. Remember, they they moved back for that um, great amount of time, which means... Some of them, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them were in the crowd that cried out for Jesus to be crucified. So what I want to show you then is what, what the response is. Now, when they heard this, the preaching, they witnessed the, the crucifixion of Jesus. But when they heard the preaching, they were cut to the heart. And they said, it, the, the word there is even more forceful. They were impaled in the heart as, as if with a spear or a sword. And they said to Peter, that is, they felt their guilt. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Okay. This is remarkable because Peter preaches a sermon and it cuts them to the heart. And now they're asking, they feel their guilt and they're saying, well, what do we do now? Uh, these Jews were there to see Jesus die. They saw him bleeding emaciated, choking on his own blood, dying, put into a tomb. And even witnessing all that, they were not cut to the heart. But now they hear this sermon and they are. And they're repentant and they had faith in Jesus and they were baptized. And in fact, that's the end of of the account. Um, 
it continues. Then Peter goes on. He does. They say, what shall we do? And Peter says, be forgiven. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. For putting this Jesus to death, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children. Um, verse 41 then says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That means they joined the church. All of those things are things done in church. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So all these people from around the world, all these Jews now have everything in common here. Uh, and, and many of them go back with, uh, with faith in their hearts. Um, and then the very end of it, verse 47, they were praising God, having favor with the people and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Okay. This is, this is a remarkable text. Um, why is it that they see Jesus die? They're not cut to the heart. They hear the preaching and they are, they see Jesus die, uh, crucified. They don't have faith. They hear the word and then they have faith. Well, this is because Romans ten seventeen tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. The Holy Spirit works powerfully through the preaching of the word. This is the vehicle of conversion. We are converted not by what we see, but the Holy Spirit converts us by what we hear. Um, and and this, is, this is so important. This is crucial for understanding the work of the Holy Spirit, what he did on Pentecost and what his... Uh, um, what his goal was. So I want to talk about this, um, what's going on here and the way the Holy Spirit works with us even today and with all Christians, all people throughout uh, all time, anyone who's believed in Jesus. Um, first, I want to go back to the doctrine of man, what it is to be a man, what it is to be fallen. And we talked about this, I think it was in the third class uh, when we talked about the fall into sin. And what happens to man's soul? What happens to man's heart and mind? Um, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us something remarkable about the condition of man. It says, the natural person, is a normal person that is, who is not a Christian, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So, He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him that the things that God says are what he considers them to be foolish or stupid is another word. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is uh, spiritually discerned. That is through the Holy Spirit. The spiritual person that is the opposite of a natural person, the one who is a Christian, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So let me stop there. Uh, But look at verse 14. The natural person does what? Not accept the things of God. He considers them foolish and stupid, 
and he can't even understand them. He doesn't understand the need for them. Um, that's man's condition. I want to show you another text that shows you the situation that man is in. And that's Ephesians chapter 2. Um, okay. It says, and you were, what is it? Dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead in our trespasses and sins. This means that we were not injured. We were not um, uh, wounded. We were dead. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Well, this is describing our spirit, our soul. What was our soul? Our soul was dead. It's the chief marker of something that is dead is something that is unresponsive. You, you can beg and plead with all your life uh, with, with someone who has died and they're not going to hear a word. It's, it's, it's over. That is the way the scriptures speak of our souls, our hearts as dead, as lifeless. Um, we'll talk about this later. Uh, we'll come back to this text again. Um, one more text. It's Romans 8, 7. And this is probably the, uh, the most revealing text about our condition. Romans 8, verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind of, natural mind of man, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is a dire situation we're in. We're not just dead. We're not, it's not just that we can't accept it or think it's foolish. But we're hostile to God. And in fact, we can't submit to what God says because of this. This, this is the condition of man. Um, and we have this conundrum that in order to believe in Jesus... You have to be a Christian. But in order to be a Christian, you have to believe in Jesus. <laughs> so it's, it's the circular thing. Well, which comes first? Do you believe in Jesus and then you're a Christian or you're a Christian? Then, well, how, how does this happen? How does it initiate? Well, uh, and if man can't save himself, if man is dead in his soul, then he, how can he choose? How can he make a decision if he's dead? Uh, he, if he doesn't accept the things of God, how does it go from not accepting to accepting? from unresponsive to responsive, from, from an enemy of God to loving the things that God says. How did this happen in you? That you're sitting here in this class and wanting to listen when your natural state was against that. That's what the scriptures say. Well, this is now the work of the Holy Spirit. How does he take somebody who is dead and considers the things of God foolish to then being alive and loving the things of God and finding them to be wise beyond measure? Well, that is a work of God. Um, Acts 16.31 says, uh, the, the apostles say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Okay, well, that's how salvation comes, is through believing in Christ. Well, how, how does that happen? How does that change happen? Romans 10.17, which I quoted before, says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Now, th this is remarkable because what comes first, the word of God or faith? And the scriptures say the word of God. In fact, so the word is, comes before your faith. Before you could believe in God, God had to speak to you first. Before you could listen to him, 
He initiated it by his word. So uh, faith is secondary to the word. That means God, uh, the, the word was working on you and in your heart before you could believe it. Uh, that your faith doesn't initiate the relationship with God. God initiates it with you through his word. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you say Jesus is Lord, if you believe in Jesus, then it's because the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart and converted you already. Um, I want to show you this amazing text. It's probably one of my favorite. It's Acts chapter 16. Um, It's one of my favorite ones on the work of God. This is the conversion of Lydia. And starting at verse, uh, let's say, 13. um, And on the Sabbath day, we went out outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Okay, so uh, a seller of purple goods. Well, purple is the hardest color to make. It's very expensive. Um, So she's a pretty rich person and she's selling things to rich people. Um, So she's well off and she's, but she's a worshiper of God. And then look at this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is amazing. Did she pay attention on her own accord? Did she open her heart to God? No, it was the Lord who opened her heart to do what? To pay attention to what was said, what was spoken by Paul, the doctrine. And after she was baptized, and her, whole, her household as well. And she urged, urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And th- this is amazing. That means if you are open to hearing what's being said right now and you're paying attention, this means this is not your own doing. It, the scriptures reveal that it is the Lord who opened your heart and is making you pay attention even now to to this teaching, to whenever the scriptures are read. Um, Acts 18 is another text, starting at verse 27. It says this, that when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. How did they believe? By grace, through gra- the grace of God. For he, um, and it was through the preaching. Uh, John chapter 6, let me show you this text. I, it can't be any clearer than this. Um, that that the very work of faith, that faith is a work of God. The Jews said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. What is the work of God? That you believe in him whom he has sent. So that if you believe in Jesus... Uh, then that is God's work in you. Um, <clears throat> we have a number of other texts, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, which is very popular, very familiar to a lot of uh, Christians. And I want to slow down when we read through this verse 
Um, let me take away these highlights here. Uh, this is the, the same text that was talking about we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then verse four then says, but God being rich in mercy, God is the actor here because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that is before we could do anything, think anything spiritually, before we could say we love God or anything. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That is, you've been given faith and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For, that is because, by grace, you have been saved through faith. Okay? Uh, by grace, you've been saved through faith. And in the Greek, there's no period. Um, in the New Testament, there's no um, it, uh, punctuation. Uh, the, the markers are, are made through words and there's indicators. But uh, so there wouldn't be a period. This isn't another sentence. Uh, by grace, you have been saved. And this. Well, what is the this referring to? The this is referring to the whole thing. Is it, is it referring to just grace? No. Is it referring to just faith? No. It's referring to that whole phrase. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this, even this faith is not your own doing. Faith is what? It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Okay. Uh, th there's a number of other texts too, but these are just uh, some highlights on it. How does someone go from not believing to believing how someone converted? Well, it is a gift of God it is by grace alone. Uh, how does someone pay attention? It's the Lord opens your heart and causes you to pay attention. Okay, now, how does the Holy Spirit give you faith? How does the Holy Spirit make you a Christian? Well, look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. Um, Let's uh, start at 13, actually, so you see this. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because what? Because you chose God? <laughs> no, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and belief in the truth. So what did God choose for you? What did he choose to do uh, for you? To be saved? Uh, it is to be saved. And through what means? By the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he, the Holy Spirit, called you through our gospel is through the good news, the good words, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, so that the, it's through the very words of the gospel that you obtain Christ's glory. So then brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions. That is the things the, the tradition has a bad uh, connotation in our mind. Um, the, the word here tradition is, things that are handed over. So, and hold to the things that were handed over to you that were taught by us. 
the, the words that we uh, taught either by our spoken word or by our letter, by the writings. So that the apostles are preaching and they are writing these things down. And he says, hold on to the words, the preaching and the, the writings, the scriptures. Um, and this is, this is how God chose you. Um, so that's Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 14. Uh, this is the way that God makes someone a Christian. Again, going back to that verse, Romans 10, 17, you should just engrave this into your heart and mind. This is, in theology, we call this the sedes doctrinae. That is the seat of Holy Scripture. Uh, what we would today call like a proof passage to say, well, where does faith come from? Well, Romans 10, 17, Lutherans, uh, because it's biblical, say, well, this is our, where the doctrine comes from. Um, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Again, this is uh, so important to keep in mind. What's first, faith or the word of God? Well, the word of God. The word of God creates faith. Uh, you can't believe in something or someone you don't know about. Um, you can't believe in God unless God is the one who reaches out first and, and does this. Uh, Romans 1.16, this is the final text I'll show you on how God converts people. Romans 1.16 says, this is Paul speaking. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is the words, the proclamation of Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins and his resurrection. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, uh, he is not ashamed of the gospel. It is what? The power of God for salvation. That means... Let me let me put it this way in practical terms. When you're hearing the sermon, when you're hearing the readings in church and the lessons, uh, when we're going through the liturgy, that's not just information. It's not just that we're coming together for a pep talk or some motivation and uh, just to go out and do better next time or something. It's not just uh, instruction either. Yes, there are instructions there. But what do the scriptures call what's being said? It It's powerful. It says, well, this is the power of God unto salvation. So that what we're hearing is not a dead word. It's not, it's not just an old dusty book that we just toss to the side and say, well, let's just entertain ourselves with this. No, this is how the apostles are speaking throughout all of uh Throughout all of church history, we're talking about a word that converted the people who crucified Jesus to have them baptized and believe in Jesus. Uh, people who, people like you and I, who were natural, um, uh, naturally born, natural minds, mindset on the flesh, and now believe in God, who now pay attention to the word. So that, that's, that's the point here. This is God's work, and he does this through his word. Um, I want to show you a diagram here. <clears throat> and I, th this is something I made quite a, 
quite a while back during a Bible study that I gave on the book of Ephesians, but I've used this diagram and I could send it to you if you want, uh, but let me share the screen here. Um, Okay, so this is on conversion. And this is what I wrote here. I said, justification is the reconciliation between God and man. And there are four possible ways this could happen. Uh, They're depicted in the chart to the right. And the image below shows the actors in salvation, their motions, and where each teaching has come from. So we'll get to that in a moment. The first thing is on conversion. So you can have... Uh, So uh, on the left-hand side, we see who begins conversion. And then on the top, it's who completes conversion, who who accomplishes it or finishes it. So somebody starts it, somebody has to start it, somebody has to complete it. Well, if you believe that man begins conversion and that man completes conversion, well, that's called Pelagianism. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, if you, so that means God is out of the picture. Man is doing all the work. Man starts it, man completes it. Okay. We call that Pelagianism. If you think that man begins it and God completes it, well, then that's called semi-Pelagianism. So it's kind of Pelagianism, meaning that man starts the process, but then God finishes it. He, he, he accomplishes the rest. Um, If you believe that um, God begins your faith and your your salvation, but that man completes it, well, then this is called synergism, that God acts first and man acts second. If you believe that God begins your salvation and that God completes it, well, then this is called monergism. the work, the words here, synergism, sin means together, uh, to work together with, so that God and man are working together here. Monergism, the word mono means one. Uh, and um, the uh, energy is the work, is the last, uh, the, the, the last part of the word. And it means that it's the work of one, that God is doing all of the work here. Okay, so let me show you these, these different, uh, hold on. Okay. Here we have uh, Pelagianism to the far left. This was by a man named uh, Pelagius. And in th- he lived uh, from 354 to 418. And so here we see man doing all the work to God. This is a symbol for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So man is doing all the work to, um, uh, to get himself to God. The second one uh, from the left is semi-Pelagianism. And uh, semi-Pelagianism is, uh, was, was invented by a man named Cassian from 360 to 435. Um, he begins the work. So he's the, the actor who initiates it. And then God responds and he comes to you second. So one of these phrases, it's like, um, do your best and God will do the rest. Right, that's what would fit fit, fit this. Or uh, take one step toward Him, 
and he'll take two steps towards you. You, you start this and then God finishes it. So you're working together, uh, but man initiates it. The third one here is probably the most popular one. And this is the one you're going to find in a lot of the non-denominational churches, uh, the Billy Graham Crusades, uh, Baptist churches, uh, things like this. This is called synergism. Uh, and this was uh, spoken of in the Synod of Orange in 1529. Um, this is where God initiates this, but then man completes it. It's upon man to then finish the work. So this is where you get things like the sinner's prayer, um, the altar call, um, uh, uh, pledging your life to Jesus. If you, if you have the Gideon Bible on the very last page, it says when you've dedicated, when you've made a decision for Christ. So that it says, well, God made a decision for you. Well, now it's up to you to make a decision for him. So God starts it and then you complete it. Well, and then this fourth and final one, is what we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which in all of these examples, except for the last one, you see that man is walking upright, (laughs) that man is um, alive. And so he can either initiate or respond to God. But this last one, how did the scripture speak? It says that we were dead in our trespasses. So can man initiate anything? No. Can he respond to anything? No, but rather God is the one who makes man alive. Um, and that this, so as Lutherans, we believe monergism. That is God does all of the work of giving you faith and completing it because that's what the scriptures say. So if, if you look in the Bible, um, the analogies that scripture uses for your salvation is that you are born again, or that you're resurrected, uh, that you're given life. Both of which are things that we have nothing, no say or input on. So for example, being born again uh, is, uh, uh, having having faith is very much like your first birth. (laughs) You didn't choose your parents. You didn't have any say in the matter. You didn't ask to be born. You didn't make a decision to be born. You didn't uh, say, I want my birthday to be September 9th or something. You simply were born. And then you realized, oh, wow, I'm, I'm alive. I have life. Well, this is the, the analogy that the scriptures use for your faith and being a Christian. That it, It's not this one big moment that you say, okay, now I'm deciding that I'm a Christian. Well, before you could even decide that, for you to pay attention to the word, to make that decision, God had already had to have opened your heart and worked on your heart to convert you, to, to even pay attention to it. So that means the Lord was already working on you. Now, what, what this is like doing is, it's like taking credit uh, for some for work you didn't do. Um, as As Lutherans, we say, no, the glory goes to God alone. He did it. If I believe, I I know what I, if God left me to myself, I know what I would be. I would remain dead in my trespasses and I'd be hostile to the word of God and I'd find it to be, I'd find it foolishness and I'd be against it. But the fact that I'm not, that means no ounce, not even an ounce of credit goes to me. Not an ounce goes to my goodness or my character or anything in me. 
It goes to Christ, to the Holy Spirit, to the Father alone. It is God's work alone. And I trust in him. So all of the glory goes to God. In fact, if you read Revelation chapter 7, the saints cry out and they say, salvation belongs to our God. <laughs> the, the, all of it. They didn't say, well, the, the start of salvation belongs to God. Or, you know, the, the, the completion of salvation belongs to God. The whole thing, all of it. From beginning to end, from his death on the cross to his resurrection, to the word going into my ear and giving me life and giving me faith. The whole process, the whole thing is from God. And so when we pray, praise God, we praise him for our own conversion and we take no credit for it. It's, it's really an amazing thing. It's a freeing thing. It's that the Holy Spirit has made us his sons in the very same way without our merit or worthiness. Okay, um, where are my notes here? Okay, <clears throat> now let me, let me talk a little bit more about this. God works through means. And let me say what I mean by means. It means that uh, he uses things to convert us. Uh, God didn't just zap faith in your heart. He doesn't just directly, you know, uh, one day to the next, just zap himself in there and say, oh, now you have faith. Rather, it pleased God to use things to convert us. And we've talked about this, uh, the, the Romans 10 text, that he is, he's pleased to use the word, the preaching of the word, Peter speaking these words. God didn't have to do that, right? He, he could just zap it into you. He could just download it into your head. But rather... He wants to use words, and this is how he does it. Does it later on in uh, some later lessons? We're going to talk about the sacraments that God not only uses words uh, spoken from the mouth, but He also uses words and ties them to water and bread and wine. And He says, "This is how I want to work uh, in this very way." Okay, we'll talk about that uh, later. But for the meantime, this is what it means that God uses means. He uses a, a delivery system. Um, he converts them uh, using a thing. So let me give you an analogy. I wish I had like a whiteboard so I could uh, draw this up, but just use your imagination here. Okay, imagine there's a, you have a house <clears throat> that you build out in the wilderness, uh, a cabin or something, and then like 50 meters away, there's a river with clean water that you can drink that you need for life and all these things. Now, you need to get the water to your house, so you need to transport it there somehow. Uh, so you start carrying it by buckets at first. Uh, and then you realize, okay, well, that's not working well. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put a pipeline. And so you dig and you put this pipeline and you put um, a, a water system in. And then you put it into the cabin and then you have a faucet. So that you just turn the handle of the faucet and water comes out, right? Um, well, then say, and that's the water from the river coming out of the faucet. Okay. Say somebody comes over to visit um, and they say, oh, this is, this is great. You have running water here. Uh, and you tell them all you had to do, you know, I spent all this time building this, uh, this, this pipeline for this. And they say, well, why did you do that? That's so stupid. Uh, you see, all you needed was the faucet 
the faucet here, you just turn this knob and the water comes out. Um, you didn't need to do all of that. You didn't need the pipeline or any of those things. The, the, the water's coming from here, right? So that's, that's what somebody says to you. Um, your response is, well, no, the reason I have water in the sink is because of those pipes. And that water from the river is how the water gets in here in this, in this bowl, right? Uh, the pipes are how the water got to you. Okay, well, this is, this is like the means of grace. Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago. We live here in the year 2022. He's not at the cross anymore. We, we have a, a, an even bigger problem than just space. We have an issue of time time of 2,000 years and thousands of miles away. There's a massive chasm between what Jesus did on the cross and me today. How do I get that? If you go to Jerusalem today, if you go to where Jesus was crucified, he's not there. So, so what are you going to do? His cross isn't there. So now what? You can go to the same place, but it does you no good. So how do you get what Jesus did to you today? Um, we need faith to receive it. Okay, well, how is that faith given? Well, the Holy Spirit uses the words, which are like a pipeline, the water pipes, to deliver the things of Jesus, the glory of Jesus to you, to give you, how do you get that forgiveness? He transports it through that means. And that's what your faith clings to. So you, you can't say, look, I don't need the word. I don't need baptism. I don't need the sacraments. I don't need the Lord. So I don't need those things. All I need is the spirit. I only need Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Uh, we don't need any of that stuff. Well, how, how did you get that water into your sink? Well, it was through these means. So where do you think the faith comes from? Well, where do you think the water comes from? It comes from the river. It's delivered through pipes. Faith comes from God, but it's delivered through his word is the point. That's how you get that forgiveness. How do you trust in it? It's through that. Okay. Um, so I, I, I want to clarify that. We'll talk more about the means of grace a little bit later uh, in, a, in a few weeks. But <clears throat> I want to talk now about this. How do you know if you're a Christian? Uh, how do you know if you are, if, if you're a Christian? Uh, if you're one of God's own? Well, you know you're a Christian if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he has forgiven your sins, that you rely upon that. That when dying, you would say, the reason I'm going to heaven is not because of anything I did, but everything Jesus did. And everything he did on the cross, he did it for me. And how do I know that? Because it's been preached to me over and over again, because I've, I've heard the word, I've been baptized, and I've heard uh, that, that this w washes away my sins. Uh, Matthew 16, 17, Jesus tells this to, to Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is uh, Peter, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven what did he reveal to him? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, Acts chapter 16 says that uh, th this is the, um, uh, the apostles with the jailer. And um, 
And he, he just asks them, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. So how do you know if you're a Christian? Well, if, if you believe in Jesus, um, do you have faith? In, in fact, John 20 verse 31 says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if you believe, then you have what? Life in his name. Now we know that's talking about eternal life because you were alive even before believing in Jesus. So what life is this talking about? Well, the, the life he came to give, which is eternal. First um, John 5.13 says this. Uh, John writes again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now you have it. Uh, John 5.24, Jesus himself says, he goes, Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment. So how do you know if you're a Christian? Well, if you have faith, if you believe in Jesus. Um, Well, where did that faith come from? It wasn't your own doing. It was a gift of God. Uh, How did that faith come to you? How did the Holy Spirit work on you? It is through his means, through the preaching of the word. In, in fact, I don't know if we have time for this, but you can go back and read all of chapter 10 of Romans, Romans 10. And it, there Paul gives you the logical progression of salvation. He says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, that's the thesis. But how does that happen? How, how do you call upon your name, the, the name of God? Well, you can't call upon someone you don't know. Okay, well... Uh, you can't believe in, in unless you know something. Well, uh, what do you believe in? And uh, uh, wh- where's that word going to come from? Well, somebody has to be sent to preach it. Well, who's going to send them? And it goes on and on and on. And then it tells you that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Uh, th- this is the process or the mechanism that God uses for salvation. Um, just some advice here. Actually, let me restart the recording here so, so it's all together. Okay, so, so after having said that, I, I want to give some pastoral advice here, which is this. Don't put your faith in your works. And you don't put your faith in your faith. You put your faith in Jesus' word alone to save you. This is what faith does. Faith always looks to Jesus and not to anything else. It doesn't look to the left, not to the right. It looks straight ahead to the cross. It looks to Jesus and says, that was for me. How do I know that? Because he said so over and over again. He loves the world. I'm in the world. Therefore, he loves me. Christ died for all. I'm one of the all. Therefore, he died for me. So that's what my faith clings to is the word. And I don't look, I don't use my faith to look at my works or my life I, look, I, I, don't, I don't even use my faith to look at my faith. I, look, I use my faith to look at Jesus. Now, uh, this is important because a lot of, Christian, a lot of Christians believe um, that it's the quality or the, the quantity of faith that saves you. And so they end up looking at their own faith and saying, well, am I faithful enough? Is my faith strong enough to be saved? But... I want, I want to tell you, if you have faith, you're a Christian. Even if your faith is weak. Because you're not saved by the quantity 
of your faith, but the quality of your faith. You're not saved by how much faith you have, but you're saved by who your faith is in. I'll, I'll give you an, an analogy here. Um, c- consider that there's a, a lake that's frozen. And I tell you, uh, you can walk across that lake and uh, you'll be fine. Right. So go ahead and walk across the lake. It's, it's strong enough to hold you. And OK, now there's two people here and one hears me say that and says, OK, I trust you. I'm just going to run across. And he he gets uh, skates on and he skates right across to the other side of the lake and he's enjoying himself. And the other person says, um, I, I really don't know about this, but I'll go ahead and step out. And he steps on the lake on the frozen water and it starts creaking and cracking and he gets scared and he's inching his way forward, taking little baby steps while the other one's just skating and uh, doing uh, twirls and flips and all these things. And the other one's going across. Well, they both make it to the other side. Okay. Um, did, did their trust in what I said, um, did that change the quality of the lake? Right. So one of them trusted what I said completely and just ran with it. And the other doubted, but still trusted enough to step onto the water. And yet they both made it to the other side. OK. Um, th- the point of this analogy is that what matters is not your faith. What matters is who your faith is in. Even weak faith, even inching your way across the lake. Is still faith. And it is a faith it is a faith in Jesus that still saves. Uh, take the opposite of this. Take the opposite. Say I lied to you and that lake is not strong enough to hold you. One person believes and says, nope, it's going to hold me. And he jumps in and then he falls through. <laughs> uh, well, then what he had strong faith. He had strong trust in my words, but my words were wrong. So the same thing applies to faith. Strong faith in a false God no matter how strong or sincere that faith is, can't save you. If you believe with all your heart that the water is going to, the the ice is going to hold you and it doesn't, what your your faith doesn't play any part of it. Uh, It, it depends upon what your, what the thing is you're walking on. Well, like the frozen lake, it doesn't depend upon how strong your legs are. It depends upon what you're standing on. Strong legs on broken ice is going to fall in. They're going to fall in. But weak legs on strong ice won't fall. Um, The point is strong faith in the wrong person won't save you. But even weak faith in the right person saves you. (laughs) Weak faith in Christ still saves because it is not your faith that saves you. It is Christ. Okay, let me talk uh, finally here about um, two, two final points. Now, now that you have this faith, um, what is the fruit of it? What's the result? Well, what effect does the Holy Spirit have on your life? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. It, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and behold, the new one has come. 
Meaning, if you have faith in Jesus, you're in Christ. You are new. That means you're not completely like you were before and without Jesus. You are now different. And you have certain powers. Understand me right. Not the ability like telekinesis or to move things or predict the future. You have spiritual powers. That is the power to pray. There's the power to believe, the power to understand the words of Jesus, to hear the scriptures and be in like the power to love your neighbor, the power to, in some degree, keep the commandments to say, I, I don't want to covet you, that the Holy Spirit gives that power. There's a new creation in you. The Holy Spirit not only gives you faith, but he also gives you the power to live a new and a different life so that it's not just information you, or his, historical knowledge you have in your head but rather something that changes your heart. I mean, you've, you've heard this so many times of people who are addicted to drugs, who become Christians, and they're, they're no longer addicted to drugs. They kick the habit. You have others who are, um, who are mean and, and awful. In fact, you could look, there's a period in church history, uh, St. Saint Augustine, his mother, um, Monica, was married to a really rude awful centurion a very awful guy um but through her kindness and persistence and speaking the word to him in love she converted her own husband and uh and he was he became very nice and loving <laughs> that's a change he had he he didn't have faith and he was this angry boisterous awful guy then he has faith and now he's a loving guy and i think he even dies a martyr i mean it's it's a beautiful sort of thing um, but there's a change in there that happens in man. Romans 6, 7, uh, chapter 6, 17 through 18 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, is belonging to sin, uh, tied down by sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That uh, the Holy Spirit gives you the power to overcome sin. Uh, to some degree. Um, if, if you want to read more about this, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14, that talks about the new man that is arises in, through, through faith. That we're not the same old people we were before. Right? So, so that there should be a mark and change in your life from before Christ to with Christ. And that there should be some change that, okay, before you didn't go to church, well, now you go to church. Well, how did that happen? Well, <laughs> the Holy Spirit changed that in you so that you hear the third commandment and say, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Okay, well, I'm going to go wherever God's word is preached. I delight in the word and I have an affection for the word of God that I love to hear the word of God and I rejoice in his forgiveness. Before that was empty words. I didn't get it. Now I do. That's a change. That's a change that you thank God for. Okay, now uh, the final minutes here, the final five minutes, I want to talk about, there's two, the, the scriptures talk about there's an improvement in man. Um, and there's a change in man that happens. Now there's two teachings on this. One is called progressive sanctification. That is pr progressive new life in Christ. And the other is called perfect sanctification. Progressive sanctification is the idea that you increase in faith and in good works. 
you increase your your faith is strengthened. You learn more. You you're you're increasing. You're more loving. You're more kind. You're more happy. You're more patient. Uh, you're more steadfast. The other is perfect sanctification, and this teaches that this there is an increase, but it happens to go so much in this life that you can eventually become perfect. That you can eventually live days without sin. In fact, there, there was. Do you know the preacher, uh, the theologian Charles or Chuck Swindoll? Um, and he writes books on, he wrote books on sanctification and things like this. Well, in, in one of his books, he was saying that he, he goes months, maybe even years without sinning. <laughs> really, he says this. Uh, but we don't, we don't find that in the scriptures. Um, Paul says the opposite. He does, the scriptures say that we do increase and improve, but never to the point of perfection. That even these improvements are maybe even minor. So Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 says, uh, Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's talking about the perfection that will come in the life to come. But in this life, he presses on for it and he strives to do better and strives to be more loving. He strives to love his wife, uh, not Paul, but the Christian would strive to love his wife more. He would strive to love his children more, strive to be a better neighbor, strive to be more generous, things like this. Um, And at the same time, 1 John 1 verse 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So that no matter what point you are in life, you could be 99 years old. You could have been a Christian since infancy, your whole life. And at no moment and no point in your life could you ever say you're without sin or to say, I haven't sinned. Rather, every day we sin in ways that we don't even know. Um, And so we say, there's never a moment that we say we have no sin. And if we say we have no sin, then the truth isn't in us. And that's a sin to say we have no sin. Um, so, uh, but at, so keep that in mind. And at the same time, Luke 17, verse 5, the apostles say to Jesus, they say, increase our faith. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 5 says, the churches were being strengthened in faith and they were increasing in number. Uh, Revelation 2.19 says this, I know your deeds. This is Jesus talking. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, all of these things, and that your deeds of late are greater than your first. So that the Christians who are converted became more loving as a Christian. They had more faith. Their faith was stronger. They, they, they served others more. They persevered more than when they first were converted than when they first believed. Um, if, if you're having trouble uh, with this or struggling to understand that there's this tension in each Christian, um, what you need to do is read Romans chapter 7, uh, starting at verse 14. Paul talks about this tension that's in him. He says, I want to do good, but when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. And the good I want to do, I don't end up doing. And the evil I don't want to do, I end up doing. So that there's this tension happening in him. That he wants to do good and he ends up doing evil. This, this is a fight every day in the life of a Christian. That 
we are never past. We never grow out of. Uh, but this fight between the old you and the new you, the old unbeliever and the, now the Christian. And every day they fight, they duke it out. Um, and it's exhausting. Every day we admit we fail and we repent. We have to repent for our sins and say, look, I tried to do good today and I failed. God help me. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Christ will. But one day, one day you're going to win the fight. One day the old you will go down and never come back. And that will be at your final day when you take your final breath. Then uh, Paul talks that way and he says, now I finish this race. <laughs> I've, I finished the fight, the good fight. I fought the good fight and it's over now. I will no longer from here on out have to struggle. I will no longer have to uh, fight my desires or these temptations. Um, I will then be perfect in Christ and the resurrection. And we'll talk about the last things uh, later. So the, the point is that we strive and we desire to keep the commandments, even if we can't do it perfectly. But we strive, we improve, we get better. But it's never perfect. And if there is any improvement, this glory goes to God alone, the Holy Spirit who has who uh, uh, improved us and I increased these things in us. Okay, I, I know we're out of time. Um, I have questions of yours from last time that I still have to answer. I'll do my best to answer those. If you have more questions about this week, I'm happy to answer those as well. Uh, just email me. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer then. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.